So it's been interesting because occupational therapy is a very functional, uh, you know, intervention. And the type of research I do is not necessarily, I mean, it's more basic. Matter of fact, um, at the first research day we had, um, I had a poster and I won the award for basic research. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today, we're lucky enough to have a friend and colleague, Patty Davies from Occupational Therapy. Patty, welcome. Thank you. We're delighted we could spend some time with you and take the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. As we were talking about in our, our sort of pre-on-the-air, we, we want to get to know Patty the person and Patty the scholar, a little bit of both. And so we'll, this little winding road of questions to both ends. But we want to start with, with sort of big picture things. So in, in terms of your scholarship, big problems that you're working on and, and the impact that you hope the work might have. That's okay. where we'd like to begin. Great. Well, I think I'm going to start with the the large picture, uh, and that really is uh, looking at why people with disabilities aren't able to function in everyday activities. I am mostly interested in children, so children with neurodevelopmental disorders like autism Mm -hmm. and um, sensory processing disorders, ADHD, and really trying to understand why Uh, They have difficulties dressing, going to school, playing, talking. And so that's the big picture of where I have begun. Great. Now, I might uh, dovetail on conversations we had just a moment ago. You just submitted an R01. Right. And so talk to us a little bit about what that entails. This this is hot off the presses kind of stuff. (laughs) Well, so yes, I uh, lived and died by three weeks of writing and, and more than that. But yes, trying to get to the the uh, finish line with that. That particular project is uh, to NIH, and it is for the area of, they call it now music and and medicine. Uh, They had a call about three years ago that we submitted to, which was music and the brain. Mm -hmm. I am not a music specialist. Uh, I enjoyed uh, playing, you know, piano and flute and those kinds of things, but I am not a musician. But our lab is now located over in the music right. therapy suite. Mm-hmm. We moved there a couple years ago. Uh, space came open over there, and we were needing to move um, out of our cur- uh, the location we were in. And we've been collaborating with both Dr. Michael Tout, who is now in Toronto, and Dr. Blythe Lagasse Mm -hmm. over in music therapy. Uh, They also are very interested in understanding how music experiences and beat and rhythm help people, uh, in particular with motor activities. So they may play music or just even a, a beat and they find people with Parkinson's disease have a better gait when they have the music. And our particular music therapy department over here is really interested in the neuroscience of that, mm-hmm. where my background is. So you bring the brains. So I, I <laughs> bring the brains. Very good. <laughs> As one may say. Um, so I've 
my area of research is really looking at brain activity, brain processing. And so we've been working, I've been working with their department for over nine years. And this was just a really nice uh, collaboration. And now that we're there, our R01 that we submitted is really looking at entrainment. And that's where you have a beat and you tap along with that beat. And we're trying to find the neuromechanisms that help that synchronization happen in the brain. That's cool. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's an area yeah. I don't excel in. I'm not a musician either for what's what. <laughs> I appreciate the skill in others. That's so yes. one thing I can share is, uh, so our lab used to be in Gifford building sure. yeah. across campus. And it was a very academic building, you know, so you go in and it's quiet. You know, there may be a few classrooms. I walk into the uh, University Center for the Arts. I hear um, pianos. I hear singing. And it just really has changed my outlook in going to do my research when you can have the music. But I can say at the beginning of the semester, sometimes it's not always sounding quite so, (laughs) so, uh, you know, fine-tuned as it is. Polishing their skills. You hear the progression. But it has given me a new outlook with my research is being in a new location like that. That's a neat observation. I can remember when Mike was on campus right over in in what's now the Tilt Building, I think, is where music therapy used to be. Many shows you how old I am, right? Right. Good old days. So, yeah, that's fun. So, Patty, talk to us about your journey. How did you get here? And, and, you know, this can involve family memories, and we're certainly going to press you on sort of educational Mm -hmm. touchstones and mentors, but talk to us a little bit about how how you got to be Dr. Patty. Well, that that was a long road, let me tell you. But, um, yeah, so I grew up in eastern Colorado on a ranch uh, near a small town called Deer Trail. Some people don't even hear about it. It's along I-70. And, and when I, you say near a small town, that just tells you how rural we're talking yes, about. Yes, yes. Yeah. So my closest neighbors growing up were, if you fly like a crow, were at least a mile. But by road, it was really a couple, three miles. We were about five miles out of town. Okay. So my dad tells the stories. Uh, he he grew up on home. They homesteaded there. He and his his parents, and he would ride the horse a horse to school sometimes. Wow. So I never had to do that. But uh, so we were pretty far out, and um, I'm the youngest of four. But one thing I really appreciate about my upbringing was I being raised on a ranch, I learned about responsibility and hard work. Indeed. And, um, you know, we had fun too. Uh, but I really credit my parents and my upbringing that's allowed me to take the journey I have uh, through yeah. academia because it is hard work. <laughs> Can you talk about early sort of memories that, that uh, kind of shaped your educational trajectory? I always have enjoyed children, so I babysat a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of our neighbors, they would come pick me up before I could drive. And, you know, again, it was two miles to their house or whatever. But I did quite a bit of babysitting, and I just enjoyed um, working with children. And so I thought that I might want to be a clinical psychologist that worked with children mm-hmm. with disabilities mm-hmm. in our rural um, community. and. Uh, when I was there, we really didn't have any supports for children with um, that 
had disabilities and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of health care or special education and that kind of thing. And so I saw that as a need. Um, And so I came to Colorado State University for my undergraduate and started in psychology. Um, Psychology really, uh, it, it has evolved, but when I came to CSU, it really was thinking about uh, mental aspects and 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 w- they worked with children with disabilities, but not a lot from a medical standpoint, and meaning that it was a lot of mental health and those kinds of things. And so I didn't know about occupational therapy, but when I was in my sophomore year, I was thinking to be a clinical psychologist at that point, it's like eight years. And I thought, I want to work with children before <laughs> eight years. Yeah. And so I found occupational therapy. And uh, what I really liked about occupational therapy at that time was it was a combination of mental health and uh, medical aspects of a person. And one of the courses that I took was neuroanatomy and mm. gross anatomy. Sure. And I really liked that aspect was learning more about the body and the brain. And psychology didn't really, that was not a requirement for psychology. So it was a nice uh, way. Um, and I could be an occupational therapist in four years <laughs> instead yeah, of eight <laughs> years. So at that point, that was desirable for me. So I ended up graduating and I was an occupational therapist for uh, eight years, nine years with a bachelor's right. degree mm-hmm. uh, before I even, you know, really thought about research and that kind of thing. Cool. Wow. So you're out working as an OT professional, mm-hmm. and, and it sounded like from your discussion just a few moments ago that the seeds of sort of graduate school probably emerged more as a professional than when you were an undergraduate. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, and it may not have been a, a moment in a very discreet mm-hmm. sense, but that's that, uh, you know, nascent idea of I want to go back and right. get an advanced degree. Right. So, yes, working with um, the children, it where I was working most of the time in that eight years was at a residential facility for children with disabilities. It was called the Institute of Logopedics, and logo is um, like word meaning. So all of the children there had language difficulties. Now it's called uh, Heart Springs um, in Wichita, Kansas. And so, and it was a, it was a really great, great experience being an occupational therapy in that setting. And we had a school and we had cottages where some of the children lived and that it was a family style. So they didn't live in dorms. It was more, they had um, caregivers in the home that lived with them. And so it was a, it was a nice, um, a nice kind of setting. So we had school and we could work with the kids in their cottages, you know, playground. Um, there was like a lunchroom. So it there were a lot of opportunities to work with the kids, the children in situations where they have to do their everyday activities. And um, we also had a medical, so we had a um, medical, chief medical um a physician on staff and some nurses. So the so it was a pretty large um, a large operation, and uh, we had psychologists and speech pathologists. So it was the whole health profession, and um, and it wasn't 
the only time this had happened, but I had both the physician and the psychologist say, well, how do you know what you do as an OT really makes a difference in the child's life? And at that point, we really had no research, no evidence. Now, evidence-based practice is a buzzword, but then we had really no evidence, just theories. And so I, you know, I took that to heart and how do we know and realized that our profession at that point was pretty young and we didn't have evidence. And I thought, well, I want to do that. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, the hunt for where to do that then no doubt ensued, right? So. Yes. So I um, actually conducted a research project in, um, so a clinical research project while I was at the Institute of Logopedics. And it came about, I, I had moved up from a staff occupational therapist to a supervisorial position uh, overseeing OT and uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, parent infant program, mm. a whole bunch of mm. uh, different health profession programs. And we were having some financial difficulties, the facility or the agency. And so they said, well, we're going to, we, we need to reduce your staff. And I said, well, you know, there's no evidence, we, you know, to reduce the staff, we would have to see more than one person at a time. Right. We'd have to do some group therapy. Mm -hmm. And there's no evidence that says that that's as effective as um, working with someone individual. Mm -hmm. And I challenged the CEO and said, you know, we can do it, but you know, I don't know if it'll be as good. And he said, well, give me a proposal. What would you, how would you look Hot at dog. this? <laughs> <laughs> so we lost no staff. Oh, he gave me you. resources yeah, yeah. Right and we did a year study. Uh, we even got to hire an external person to do assessments and stuff. And we did group therapy and we did individual therapy and compared them. Son of a gun. And so that was a lot of fun. And um, we got to the data. I was working with the research division. And uh, there were two people in the research division I was working with. And we got to data analysis. And they didn't agree on how to do it. And of course, having a bachelor's degree, I, I didn't know. Yeah. And I said, I am going to do something about this. I never want to be in the position where I can't make a decision. Right. And yeah. so statistics became an important, being able to do my own research Absolutely. was important. Cool. <laughs> so you ultimately took that into a doctoral program mm -hmm. somewhere. So again, tell us about where and with whom. And yeah. So I looked around um, at some, I was interested in developmental psychology and neuroscience. And I wasn't sure, uh, it just really depended, I think, on a program that I could find that might allow um, both of those kinds of knowledge. And I ended up um, going to the University of Wyoming. They had a developmental psychology program and a neuroscience program. And so I was accepted into the psychology um, department, uh, but also um, many of those faculty were in the interdisciplinary neuroscience program. So I got to do both there. Mm. The uh, department head was a statistician. Oh, so yeah. that was, and mm -hmm. the course, I mean, I 
uh, were phenomenal. And so I credit him. I learned so much and he talked taught me about variance and how to account <laughs> for variance right. in my research. And so that was important. And then uh, more neuroanatomy and knowledge that I could gain about the brain, which mm-hmm. I was really interested in. That's great. So this is presumably where this sense of, I think I want to be an academic started to take shape in some way, shape or form, right? Now, postdoc, early career moves? Right. So again, this has been a few years, you know, a minute ago, a few years ago. (laughs) And uh, there were not very many occupational therapists who got PhDs. And so getting a position in a occupational therapy department within a university, you didn't have to have postdocs. Now, um, our profession has changed and we have advanced, so many times we have to, but I was fortunate. I was able to go right from my PhD into a faculty position. And I was fortunate that I, uh, within two years, a couple years, I was applying for uh, mentored grants Uh, like a KO1, we call it it, with NIH, and that gives me time to do my research. Um, So I got to do a postdoc, really, as a faculty member with a KO1. And so that worked out really well. And what that was all about was in the neuroscience program at CSU, um, I wasn't, I learned electrophysiology and, you know, made, um, electrodes and worked with electrodes in animals, but I didn't have the opportunity to do any neuroimaging with humans. And so that's what the KO1 was, was to give me some experience with neuroimaging. That's cool. And where was that? I'm trying so to I went picture to your CV. I've seen it more than once. Sun- but... SUNY at Buffalo. Yes, that's what I was oh, recollecting. And so Moving from, well, so Colorado, Wichita, Wyoming, so kind of, you know, kind of the sun, Rocky Mountain. Well, Wichita is really kind of (laughs) plains Midwest, but it's close to the mountains. Moving from here to Buffalo was not something I was necessarily looking forward to. Growing up with the sun and knowing that Buffalo gets a lot of snow. And and I heard on uh, NPR that there's not even enough sunshine in Buffalo to grow tomatoes without, uh, you know, Help. grow lights. And I wow. thought, oh my, this is going to be <laughs> now a, what you're used to. <laughs> a challenge. So, you know, but it was a good university. It was a good program. And I thought I can do anything for five or six years. So I was there for six years. And then we managed to bait the hook and recruit you back to your alma mater. Yes. Yes. And how did we pull that off? How were we well, lucky enough to get Patty to come come join us? <laughs> well, so I always felt, of course, a little biased, but um, CSU has always had a very good occupational therapy sure. program. Mm-hmm. And it's been in the top 10 of the country um, for a long time. And so I thought, well, it's a very good program, but people don't retire from here very quickly and it's competitive to get a position here. So I thought, well, you know, I can always hope. 
um, well, I got the K01 um, five year grant. Mm -hmm. And because I had a grant that paid a lot of my salary, sure. I was very, um, it gave me leverage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the, a position came open and I applied for it. And uh, yeah, so I felt lucky that something opened up and I was able to come back to CSU. Yeah, the feelings are mutual, for sure. <laughs> now, if I may, when did you start? 2000. So if it's any consolation, I got you beat by a couple of years. I, so, I know. Yeah, yeah, but we're, we're of that same basic cohort, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. A year or two ago, as they say. Good. Mm -hmm. So so talk to us a little bit about life in, in the Davies lab, your, your group, and mm -hmm. feel free to name names, who, who are you working okay. with at the moment? And, yeah. You know, one of the things that everybody laughs when I ask it is the, the day in the life, as if there's a sort of a typical day. But mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about what, what a, a representative day right. might look like. So my close colleague, uh, Dr. Bill Gavin, sure. uh, he's been working in the lab um, for about 18 years. Okay. So um, not full time, but um, he has a lot of um, background with statistics and electronics and building. Uh, he had a lot of experience with computers. So there were some um, skills he brought to the lab that helped me because then I didn't have to necessarily learn, learn the computer programming to Indeed. write the code to yes. get the analysis we needed. So he, he's been very instrumental in um, those kinds of things. And then, of course, I mentioned uh, Dr. Blythe Lagasse, yep. who's in music therapy. Four years ago, CSU hired uh, Dr. Jacqueline Stevens, who is an occupational therapist. And she um, kind of followed me because she's an OT, but was interested in neuroscience and neuroimaging. Mm -hmm. And so she um, would watch come to AOTA and, and write, Dr. Davies, can I meet with you? So she kind of followed me for about 10 years and kept trying to connect with me. Well, uh, she uh, graduated with a degree in neuroscience, did a postdoc at John Hopkins, mm -hmm. and then a position came open at CSU. And so we hired her. And I mentored her in writing an institutional uh, mentoring grant. And then she, with my mentoring, got it into a K01. So she ended up being able to do something similar to what I had. So she uh, has is part of the lab, but is developing her own lab as well. So she's been part of it. We have about four PhD students that are working in occupational therapy, started a PhD program 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the first two was uh, Mei Hung Lin from Taiwan who worked in our lab. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so we've had for about eight years, one to four PhD students. And then we have master students and then um, neuroscience undergraduate students galore. <laughs> That's nice. great. Yeah. So you see a lot of bright young faces, right? Yes. That's neat. So we put on our imagination caps and flash forward five years into the future. You're just wrapping up data collection on your 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 ro one right? So that, that we successfully get funded. <laughs> yes. Talk to us about, uh, about the, the Brainwaves Lab and your, your activities a few years down the road. What do you envision? Yeah. What do you aspire to? Right. So one of the things that I found out 
um, that it really takes a lot longer to get to that place sure, you sure. want to be. Mm-hmm. So I had mentioned, I, I ultimately, I'm very interested in understanding more about the brain and brain processing in children with disabilities and how that relates to their everyday function. When I started collecting EEG data, we didn't even know what brain processing was in typical development. Mm. So much of my um, career so far has been learning about that aspect and collecting those data. I've been fortunate we collected data on children with sensory processing disorders and also children with autism. So we've been able to, to work in that arena as well. And one of the things, so our lab has had a lot of firsts. We were the first lab in the world that did collect neuroimaging data in children with sensory processing disorders and show that indeed their brain processes uh, sensory information uh, significantly different than a neurotypical child. So that was so exciting. And then there was a new uh, kind of executive function or uh, higher order thinking task, error-related negativity or performance monitoring. And it's when our brain signals that we made a mistake so we can adapt our behavior. Well, if you think about that, that's really important to thinking about children with disabilities and do they have those kinds of processing? Well, our lab was the first one to collect that data in children. And we published that in 2004. And it's been, I mean, so that was really fun to be the first. So we've learned a lot and children's brains are much different than adults. And so we have contributed a lot to uh, statistical analysis and how do you look at brain activity in children. You can't use the same techniques you do with adults. Uh, their brain activity is much more variable. So you can't assume that every trial is the same. Um, So those are some things we've done so far. What I have, um, what I wanted to really try to do is relate brain activity to behavior. So brain behavior relationship, because that's going to tell us about what in the behavior and what in the brain is different in children with disabilities and how how can our interventions help with that? Simple correlations don't do it. Mm-hmm. We tried that. <laughs> and so in the last five years, we've been, and this is one of the pieces in that R01, is looking at modeling. So how can you put multiple variables within one sure. model and show how it all relates together? We've gotten three publications with that one, with that uh, performance monitoring task. And so we're proposing uh, looking at these modeling with entrainment. And the models are becoming very consistent no matter what the task is. So it's looking like the brain in children and the way it develops is similar. So we're learning patterns. And so we are beginning to show how brain and behavior relates to one another and how then eventually can interventions influence that. So that's kind of um, what the next uh, piece is. Wow. It, it, it seems to me it must be incredibly rewarding for you to come back to your undergraduate alma mater as a senior scholar and make these seminal contributions and 
so incredibly productive in, in an area that you had an interest in before you first set foot on this campus. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, good for you. <laughs> yes. Congratulations. Yes. So it's been interesting because occupational therapy is a very functional, uh, you know, intervention. And the type of research I do is not necessarily, I mean, it's more basic. Um, matter of fact, um, uh, at the first um, research day we had, um, I had a poster and I won the award for basic research. <laughs> 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 and so it's been a journey and it's um, I'm always trying to explain how what I do relates to occupational therapy. And I'm not sure I always succeed in that, um, but I'm OK <laughs> with it. Yes. Um, so so sometimes you say it's fun and it is. Uh, sometimes there's some struggles there. And I think this is an important observation. We you know, I, I've said a million times I love my job. Do I love every minute of every day? You know, are we, life is full of the warp and woof of great days and challenging days and all the things that come with yeah. <laughs> the messy business of doing life together, as we say, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I was teaching uh, this morning, I'm teaching uh, the PhD students uh, seminar, and it's kind of a philosophy of science and, you oh, know, fun, trying to yeah. deal with reality and how, you know, sure. is there, re- what is, you know, and uh, it came up that being in academia is like an s- extreme sport. You're <laughs> always on the edge and it's, it's difficult, it's hard, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, but, and then so, PhD students thinking they'll go on to academia. I didn't want to leave it with that. And I said, yes, but there are so many benefits of it. Mm-hmm. So There are indeed. But but we we do find ourselves working with a lot of driven people. But yeah. by, it's yes. the nature of the beast, right? Yes. yes. Uh, and that's, that's a lot of fun. But it can be challenging too, for yeah. sure. So I have a couple layered questions as we wrap up. The, fir- the first is to ask you to share reflections on, on the things you like the best about working in the College of Health and Human Sciences. So, and why I'm, I'm, I'm smiling is because our college has gone through a, a couple of name changes. It has, yes. And yeah. um, I, I like, uh, I, I really like our priorities and emphasis on human health and wellness mm-hmm. and all, how all of our very varied um, departments and schools contribute to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a really, is really important. And I think by the name of our college, we've been able to really portray that to the rest of the university and the importance of that. Um, so I, I like that. I like what all of the our units collectively um, can do in that arena. Well said. I enjoy the diversity Good. in our college, mm-hmm. and because we have so many different units and professions involved, um, that's been very rewarding. It's a dynamic environment. Isn't yes, it? it is. I love it. And so we, we operate as a college within this institutional structure, part of which is, is this important piece, and it's not just branding, we tend to use that that kind of language, but I think it's really part of our ethos as an institution, this this land-grant ethos. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you'd share reflections on that as well. So I think going back to my agriculture roots, right, right, of being a a 
being on a ranch and also being part of 4-H. My uncle, um, Raleigh Brooks, who has passed away, was in charge of um, the 4-H part of extension here at CSU oh, for yeah. many years. Whoa. And um, and so I've always had, I, I've always known about that part and really have appreciated it. I worked with Dr. Laura Bellows sure. in food science and human nutrition on a um, project looking at the development of obesity and young children, mm -hmm. uh, looking at motor skills and those kinds of things with her, with her and her team and reaching out to uh, rural areas through extension and helping to collect data and uh, work with data on that project. So I think the um, opportunities, uh, even though my primary research hasn't had that, I've been able to participate in some of those outreaching kinds of projects. And I think um, I, I'm very proud to be part of a land grant institution. Particularly proud given your roots as you articulated. Yeah. That's great. Well, Patty, I just want to thank you for spending a few minutes with us. We really appreciate it. And it never gets old. I, I love hearing the story. Somebody who I've known for 20 plus years and yeah. you, you learn new things and, and that's a delight. So thanks again for sharing. We appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. It's our pleasure. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Be sure to check out the rest of season two, as well as season one. If you want to learn more about the college, go to www.chhs.com dot colostate.edu.